hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and to overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to be sharing with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm really excited to have Victoria Stockwell back on the podcast. Now Victoria Stockwell is an academic researcher and former pro bikini competitor. Victoria was on my podcast earlier this year in May and it's proved to be one of my most popular episodes. Victoria talks there about her recovery from an eating disorder and also her delving into the bodybuilding world and the impact that that had on her eating and body image. So do go and check out that episode if you haven't listened to it already. So Victoria's back today to talk all about the body ideal. What is it? How has it changed through the ages? And why is it such a big deal? And how does it impact us? Victoria has so much knowledge and information on this as she has based a lot of her research on this in the past. Victoria also talks today about how she is on her own journey in trying to improve her body image and to let go of the kind of body ideal and all these messages that have been drummed into her from and all of us from very early on. So I'm really looking forward to hearing some of those tips that she's going to share, which I'm sure are going to be really relatable for so many of us. So I hope you enjoy. Let's get over to the interview. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for returning to do another episode on my podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. So Victoria, today we're having you back to talk about the body ideal, which I know that you have done quite a lot of extensive research on and kind of over the years. So you're going to be talking to us a bit about how it's changed, why we place so much value on this. And also, I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you about how your own journey and how you're kind of addressing this and trying to work on your own body image and improve your relationship with food. So I think it's going to be really exciting for our listeners. So thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your expertise again. So could you just talk us through, first of all, the body ideal? You know, can you talk us through the ages and tell us a bit about how it's changed? Yep, sure. So nowadays, the body ideal is slim or what the fitness industry calls lean. And it's usually quite fit. But this slender ideal has only become fashionable during the past century, really. Before this, cultures all over the world idealise voluptuousness and we actually have evidence of this in the Paleolithic chalk statue which is a little chalk statue about four inches tall called the Villendorf Venus and this dates back to 21,000 BC. So we can see from this sculpture what bodies were like or, or which bodies were preferred and this little sculpture has a very full figure, it has large breasts and a large belly and there's also also been evidence for a preference of larger women in other sculptures from prehistoric Greece, Babylonia and Egypt. So the ideal body, even at this time, which is going back to 30,000 BC, was big and matriarchal, which at the time symbolised fertility and female power. And this body type persisted 
right up until the 19th century, which is when slenderness really first came into fashion. And for the first time, images of the ideal female body were able to be widely distributed because of developments in new technologies. Of course, this was when photography was invented. So this allowed the vision of the ideal form to reach more women via ladies' magazines and fashion plates. And this was also when shop mannequins also were first used. So you could actually see a female figure in three-dimensional form. At the end of the 19th century, one women's magazine, which was called Beauty and Hygiene, stated that, and this is a quote, a slender, well-proportioned figure is the desire of most women. So a beautiful figure in the 19th century was hourglass. It was slim and it was curvaceous. So women wore bustles and tightly laced corsets to achieve this look. But the tight lacing and the whalebone reinforcement were dangerous because they caused the gradual shifting of internal organs. So women who used corsets often suffered from fainting fits, headaches, problems with breathing. And women also attempted to replicate the ideal figure by restrictive dieting. And in 1863, a physician named William Banting created the, really the first low carbohydrate diet. So this was a bit like the modern Atkins or keto diets. It cut out sugar and most carbohydrates, but it did, however, permit alcohol. <laughs> Women of this period also drank vinegar and they took poisonous laxatives such as calomel in order to look like the ideal. But with long-term use, calomel caused the gums, the teeth, and eventually the entire jaw to erode and fall off. So there were lots of dangerous practices that women were, were using in order to replicate this ridiculous cartoonish ideal. So this move towards slenderness in the 19th century was the result of a change in women's socio-political status because this is when the balance of power between the sexes began to change and towards the end of the century suffragettes campaigned to obtain votes for women. So their actions destabilised the Victorian gender binary which is man is assertive and strong and woman is passive and weak. So this ideal of being slender is very much a backlash to that. And the same thing happened again in the 1920s as women aspired to gain freedom and power. A new, very slender body ideal emerged, which was sort of boyish flapper look. And this led to an increase in cases of anorexia because women attempted to have the thin, very kind of boyish, up and down, straight up and down figure. So they severely restricted their food intake. So this slim ideal was really a tool of patriarchal oppression that was created as a response to the feminist movement. And it ensured that women's energies were directed away from politics and towards dieting. Naomi Wolf writes in her very famous work, The Beauty Myth, that a culture fixated on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty, but an obsession about female obedience. And she writes that dieting is the most potent political sedative in women's history.
So the idea is that basically you can't campaign for social change on an empty stomach. So the following decade saw the return of the singed waste, but it wasn't until the 1950s that the hourglass figure returned in full force, which was made popular by celebrities and Hollywood actresses such as Jane Mansfield and of course Marilyn Monroe. But this was achieved by wearing a girdle rather than a tightly laced corset. And this beauty ideal was also reflected in the Barbie doll, which was introduced in 1959 and had a large bust, long legs and a tiny waist. And if Barbie was a real woman, she would be five foot nine, have an 18 inch waist and she would meet the weight criteria for anorexia. So this was a very exaggerated, impossible body. And since the 1960s, the figure possessed by models, beauty contestants, has become increasingly slim. In the 60s, we had British fashion model Twiggy, who first appeared in Vogue in 1965. And she really became a cultural icon of femininity. She was very slim. She weighed just 97 pounds. And this sadly inspired millions of women across Britain and America to go on extremely restrictive diets. And as this body ideal reduced in size, definitions of what was overweight began to include more and more women because the boundaries shifted. For example, the average weight for pageant contestants in the 1960s was 10 pounds below the national average for that age group and 20 pounds below women overall. So there was a bigger gap between what the ideal body was and what women actually had in the general population. And as in the 1920s, this second thin ideal coincided with another feminist movement. So female attempts to gain equality in the 1960s led to the creation of this small body ideal that really signified obedience and passivity. So once again, slenderness was used to suppress women's socio-political aspirations. Then we get to the 1980s, so a decade I can actually remember, sort of, (laughs) and this body ideal was replaced by a more toned aesthetic. So it was still slim, but it was now more athletic. And a new slimming industry emerged, which reinforced this culture of thinness by encouraging the practices of calorie counting, weight watching, and dieting. Then we have the 90s with its pale emaciated look was really based around heroin chic and this was made fashionable by by models such as Kate Moss who found fame in the 90s in that very famous Calvin Klein advert. When we get to the 2000s the extent of just how far the western slender ideals spread across the world is evident in the 2001 Miss Universe contest where the judges were told to pick someone who was a global beauty So that's to say, someone thin. And now we come to the present day. And because of the growth of fitness culture, the body ideal in 2020 is really the hourglass body again, which we've seen in the 19th century and in the 50s. But this is curvaceous and lean, but curves are created with muscle. And then instead of thin or slim, the fitness culture would call it lean. Well thank you for talking us through all of that Victoria because it's fascinating isn't it I think when you actually really do stop and reflect on the changing body ideal 
Um, you know, it, it really has kind of changed so much. But obviously in recent years, it's always kind of leaning towards kind of thin, isn't it? Yeah. In some sort of shape or form. And it's interesting as well, isn't it, about all this kind of sort of thinness and like the political side of it and women kind of almost like, you know, showing kind of obedience and the kind of roots of thinness are kind of so against, I guess, I kind of think our kind of cultural culture now and how kind of women are feeling and how women are kind of, you know, the feminist movement and women becoming much more assertive and equal rights and all of that. But it's so interesting how we haven't kind of let that go, though, have we? You know, we still feel this real pressure to kind of be thin and to look a certain way. And can you tell us a bit more about that? You know, why do you think that is still so? Well, I think that it's because of a few things. It doesn't, it's not just one, doesn't just boil down to one cause. But I think part of it is that the slender body is laden with moral judgment. We put so much morality on being thin or eating clean or being healthy or whatever. And I actually did some research into this moral significance around the slender body. And this was a few years ago now. I asked 50 women to suggest qualities that they associated with having low body fats. And it was really interesting because the responses were that slimmer women are more attractive, more socially acceptable, they have more self-respect since they were perceived to be more health conscious. And this, of course, reveals a common and false belief that weight equals health. We know that it's not an accurate indicator of health. Thinner women were also viewed as inspirational role models. And this is a quotation from one of the women I interviewed. She said she saw thinner women as strong, healthy and self-loving they were prepared to put in long-term effort to get the best from themselves. So it's all very positive qualities that are associated with having a lower level of body fat. But the quality most frequently associated with being thin was self-control, especially with regard to eating behaviours. And people I interviewed used language such as discipline, motivation, determination and focus to describe women who were able to successfully diet and lose weight and this echoes feminist critic Susan Bordeaux who states that and this is a quote from her food refusal and weight loss have become cultural metaphors for self-determination will and moral fortitude but of course if eating and shaping our bodies are perceived to be matters of willpower and dedication this means that if we fail to achieve the thin ideal, then it's our fault because we didn't diet or exercise hard enough. So we're led to believe that we have failed, but this isn't the case because dieting isn't a matter of willpower. Diets just don't work long-term. No matter how much you try to fight your hunger to decrease your weight, your body will always fight back. But we are led to believe that it is some kind of personal moral failing. The second point about why we're so wrapped up in this ideal is that there is also a powerful cultural message that conforming to the slender ideal yields social success. So we're led to believe that in order to be valued or loved, we must embody an almost physically impossible ideal. And this idea is perpetuated through advertising and media, whether it's print or online, the lean fit body is, is really portrayed as the ticket to wealth, success and 
social approval. And this marketing, it all comes down to profit. It's all about making money. And it comes from the beauty, diet, fitness industries who sell us the concept of the body ideal. In this way, they profit from targeting our insecurities. They know that they can make money by telling us how we should look and reminding us that our bodies are not okay without all their products. Just to exemplify how big this industry is, I did a bit of research into the current global markets and it reflects a $532 billion beauty industry and a $166 billion health and weight management industry. These numbers are so big, I, can't, I don't even know how to read them. I don't even know what these numbers are, but it's a massive amount of profits from our insecurities. So these industries, they just bombard us with messages telling us how we should look. And we're vulnerable to the power of these messages because in comparison, we're made to feel overweight and ugly. And we're told that our bodies need correction and they need improvement. We might have felt okay when we woke up in the morning, but then scrolling online, looking through advertisements that are popping up, we, we suddenly realise that, no, we need to be thinner, we need to be smoother, we need less cellulite. So we're just led to believe that our bodies aren't good enough as they are. And by extension, that we're not good enough. And we want to be good enough. We want to be long. We want to belong. Everyone wants to be socially accepted. So we try to change our bodies to fit society's standards. And conveniently, we have the solution right in front of us because the same companies who distribute images of the ideal body just happen to sell the products that will supposedly give us this body. So they make money by nurturing our bodily anxiety. They create the problem and then offer us the solution. So it's quite clever, really, in a very immoral way. They make us believe that we can improve our bodies. They tell us that transformation is easy as long as we're willing to spend. Yeah, and it's very seductive, isn't it, really? And I think, obviously, we just don't, we're sort of brought up in this kind of cultural environment, aren't we, of the kind of mass media. Yeah. And we don't really realise almost how kind of brainwashed and how exposed we are to all these things all the time. But I think it's so interesting how you're talking as well about just how, it's so linked down to, isn't it? Like the bottom line is whether we kind of feel good enough, whether we feel worthy, whether we feel accepted. And it's almost like kind of how we look, our appearance, how thin we are has got so tied up in all of that. Yeah. Can I just ask you, Victoria, as well? I know we're speaking mainly about kind of women here as well, but do you think as well in more recent years that men are also kind of quite influenced by all of this too? Definitely. And I think this has increased over maybe the last decade. There's definitely more emphasis on men's fashion, men's beauty products. Men are much more into grooming now, and especially in the fitness and bodybuilding industry that I'm very familiar with. There's so much more pressure on men to look a certain way. And of course, eating disorders are very prevalent amongst men as well. It's just men are less likely to seek help or report it. But I know that it is very it's very widespread in the fitness industry, especially for the fitness and bodybuilding competitions. So yes, even though my research is primarily looking at women, it definitely affects men as well, and more so now than it has done previously. Mm, sure, no, thank you for sharing that. 
And of course, like all this kind of dieting and focus on changing our bodies, etc., you know, of course, it, it leads, doesn't it, very often to disordered eating behavior as dieting is so often like a kind of trigger for going down that road. Yeah, yeah. One of the industries that's responsible for creating and perpetuating this ideal is diet culture. And as we know, dieting is the number one cause of disorderly eating. Even I think the current diet industry has cottoned on to the fact that people know now that diets don't work so they've kind of rebranded themselves as oh no it's not a diet it's a wellness plan or it's a healthy lifestyle or it's clean eating it's not a diet they are diets but they're even more insidious really because they still have a striving after a smaller body size but all under the guise of being healthy but health is still equated with being thin and this diet culture causes massive problems for a number of reasons as i've just mentioned it involves restricting your food intake which is the number one cause of eating disorders it also relies on offering weight loss solutions that don't work and that's partly because diets don't work anyway 98 percent fail long term and also it ensures our repeat custom because if they offered a weight loss solution that worked obviously then we won't go back and give them any more money And because they don't work, we become trapped in this cycle of yo-yo dieting, which is very destructive. Diet culture also moralizes foods and behaviors as good and bad. And we know that putting any kind of morality on our food choices leads to restriction and then binging. And then that becomes a problem. It also causes people to try and lower their weight below their set point weight. So if we're trying to reach the ideal, the ideal body size or shape, for most people, this is going to be below their set point, which is where our body, the weight where our bodies are happiest is in this sort of range of numbers. But if we try and push our weight below this by dieting, this will cause, again, eating disorders, psychological problems, long-term metabolic damage, and lots of other health complications as well. So what starts off as maybe calorie counting can lead to more disorderly patterns of behavior, like extreme restrictive dieting, fasting, cutting out whole food groups, such as carbs, as I've mentioned with keto or Atkins, and obsessive exercise as well. And it was interesting is that I've spoken about this in, in one of my podcast episodes, talked about the Minnesota starvation experiment, which proves that eating disorders can be created just by depriving ourselves of food. And this can just be through dieting. So just to talk about this experiment briefly, because it was very interesting. The Minnesota starvation experiment was a study that was conducted in 1944, and it documented the effects of following restrictive diets. And the study was led by a doctor called Ansel Keys, and it set out to find the most effective methods of rehabilitation for the millions of people who experienced starvation during the Second World War. So the research team did this by starving 36 young, healthy male volunteers for six months. And when I say starving, they were allotted 1,600 calories a day, which actually doesn't sound that little compared to some diets that people are put on nowadays. So it doesn't sound like that little food, which it just shows you how many calories and how much food our bodies actually need. Because even on the 1,600 calories for six months, 
they had shocking extreme results and even though none of the participants had no previous history of eating disorders they went on to develop food obsessions extreme hunger psychological problems disorderly patterns of eating bulimia and anorexia and this was all a result of the starvation process i think one person just couldn't do the study anymore and he just ran off home another person went completely mad and sawed off three of his fingers so just these crazy effects just from restricting food intake and then some continued to restrict even after the study had ended and then others went on to become bulimic or be very obsessive about food some people became chefs and so you can see how this even a period of six months which is relatively short they still had very severe reactions to restricting their bodies are deprived of them of food and what's interesting is that these effects are typical of what we might experience when we engage in just chronic dieting people have dieted all their lives they probably experience some of these symptoms but they might just see them as normal because they've experienced them for such a long time so it's the starvation itself that leads to psychological and physiological changes in the bodies so eating disorders can be created just by depriving ourselves of food when we go on a diet. Mm. No, it's so fascinating, isn't it? I think just to be reminded of that Minnesota starvation experiment, because I think in a way, of course, it would never be ethical today, would it? But yeah. <laughs> the fact that it <laughs> happened <laughs> gives us such a, a helpful reference point, doesn't it? To really you know, look back to and, and realise the kind of genuine impact of starvation on the human body. So Victoria, you talked on my podcast in May. So anyone listening, if you haven't listened to that episode in May, do go and check it out. It's been a really popular episode. You talked more then about your history of disordered eating and also your experiences of working in sort of competitions in the bodybuilding world. And I know that you're on your own recovery journey still to improving your body image and letting go of so many of those ingrained messages about weight and dieting and everything else. So could you tell us a bit more about how you're going about this now to kind of really improve your relationship with your body? Because I know that so many listeners are in a similar position of wanting to change their relationship with food, with their body, but they're feeling quite stuck in how to go about this. Sure. Yeah. So the first thing is find a good therapist such as Harriet. <laughs> she is an amazing therapist and I wouldn't be where I am today without her. Get weight restored but then when you're weight restored that doesn't necessarily mean that all your thoughts and behaviours are going to go away. You need to do a lot more work. I've been weight restored for three years now and I'm so much better than I was but I'm still trying to challenge my beliefs so for me right now the main obstacle that's preventing me from making a full recovery at the moment is that I am scared of a weight gain I think my body needs to gain a bit more weight even though I'm weight restored but I'm still quite scared to push that up and I think that's because I have restricted my eating since age 11 and I've been so entrenched in the diet and fitness culture since my early 20s. So I have a lot of beliefs to undo that my body has to be smaller and I have to be really lean. So I'm trying a few things that will help me to challenge these beliefs. So I'll just run through them. 
Number one is that I'm trying to remind myself that when I did have what I thought was my ideal body, so very thin or when I was a fitness model, I wasn't happy and I wasn't any happier with my body. In fact, I was more miserable and anxious because I knew that I could never sustain this type of body. You have like what you think is the best you can look for one day whilst you're on stage or for a photo shoot. And then the next day, it just vanishes as soon as you start eating and drinking again. So the thinner you get, the more you restrict your food, the more disorderly your patterns of eating and exercising become the more miserable you are. And in the end, I did become very ill with anorexia. So I'm trying to remind myself that losing weight doesn't make you feel better about your body. I still thought I was big, even though I was extremely tiny and very ill. Losing weight doesn't make you change any of the beliefs about you have about yourself. It doesn't make you feel any more confident, or for me, it didn't anyway. I still didn't think that I was enough or I was lovable and I couldn't live my life because everything revolved around food and going to the gym and I was so tired and so ill and I just didn't have any mental or physical energy for anything else. So if I'm tempted to look back on old photographs with rose-tinted glasses thinking, oh, everything was great when I was thin, I just have to remind myself, no, it wasn't. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. Number two is by telling myself that my body is not supposed to be at a weight that I can only maintain through food restriction and other disordered behaviours. So if I am the weight I am now, but I'm only staying here because I'm not eating enough, then I'm trying to accept that, okay, my body just wants to be a bit heavier and am I really going to fight this for the rest of my life? You know, my body, I want to give my body what it wants because it's horrible having to fight it all the time. third thing is that... I think I've done quite well with this, is that I'm really trying to avoid diet culture and images of body ideals as much as possible. So I've unfollowed any unhelpful social media accounts, which unfortunately means unfollowing lots of my friends who are still in the fitness industry because it's so easy just to kind of scroll through your phone and have all these images pop up these bodies that you once thought were really great and still thinks really great it's like no 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 you know how damaging it is so just get rid of everything just get it out of your social media feed but then fill it with things that counter these so body positive accounts but you have to be careful with body positivity sometimes because this word has sort of been used by fitness and diet industries that are pretending to be body positive so they might say oh love your body but actually people saying they love their bodies are people who are still shrinking them still on diet still exercising like crazy so you have to be careful that they are actually body positive accounts the health at every size movement i i only really was introduced to this or i found this quite recently and it really opened my eyes to the connection between weight and health and that you can be i mean i always knew that you could you could be very thin or you could you could look very fit but not be fit and healthy as I was when I was competing. And, you know, this is just saying that actually you can be healthy at any size and you can be unhealthy at any size. You know, those two things aren't necessarily linked together. 
also looking at things that are anti-diet there's a couple of books i've read recently that have been really good and very well written there's caroline duna's book which is the effort diet i would say the real world on the podcast mm-hmm. and christy harrison's book which is actually called anti-diet and that has a really good the first bit goes into history of restrictive eating and body ideals as well so that's really good number four is I'm trying to find who I am outside of diet and exercise because those things have taken up my life for such a long time. So I'm trying to focus on stuff that's not got to do with the body. So things like I love reading, I love writing, I love researching, I love baking, I love Disney, I love cats. Yeah, I'm just trying to find all the things that I like doing that don't involve torturing my body in some way. I'm trying to appreciate my body for all the things that it's allows me to do so first of all it's sort of like a vehicle that I can experience the world it allows me to live and I keep trying to remember that it did save my life by making me very hungry when I was anorexic and driving up my hunger cues and food cravings and of course that led me to eat and that's why I'm here today so you know my body kept me alive even though I was trying really hard to starve it so bodies are amazing and of course reminding myself that body and beauty ideals are constantly being reinvented and they vary greatly between cultures and over time and so the ideal body isn't based on truth it's a social construct and I was thinking about that I was having a conversation with my friend and she was talking about eyebrows and she said the trend for eyebrows keeps changing so yeah first of all you have to have them really thick and dark and then you have to brush them upwards somehow and you know even just trends for eyebrows are changing and it's like there's no perfect ideal eyebrow it doesn't exist it just whatever happens to be the eyebrow trend at the moment so it's not based Mm. on like this perfect truth so yeah those are my six ways that I am trying to (laughs) unwire my brain (laughs) wire it in a different way to not be so swept up with this body image ideal Mm. well thank you so much for sharing that wisdom Victoria because I think really valuable and inspiring tips and which I think you know of really things that people can take away and you know take on board so you know thank you so much for sharing those I think it'd be really helpful to so many people listening so what would you say what's the kind of final take-home message for us all on this body ideal well remember that the modern concept of the ideal body is as well it's an ideal so it's non-inclusive and it's flat phobic it creates a hierarchy of bodies and those who are closest to this culturally imposed ideal at the top and those further away are at the bottom. So any idea that we should all have the same body shape or size is completely unrealistic and damaging. And as we've been discussing, it leads to body dysmorphia, disorderly eating, pathological eating disorders. And we're made to believe that the problem lies with us. And if we mold ourselves to fit the cultural ideal, our problems will be solved. But instead of every woman trying to squeeze themselves into a ridiculously narrow cookie cutter ideal, society should accept the natural diversity of female bodies because we're all different heights and you wouldn't expect everyone to be the same height. So why should you expect everyone to have exactly the same body? Mm, so very true. Hear, hear. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. So Victoria, can I ask you now three final quick fire questions? So what would be your last supper three course yes. meal? 
So yeah, what would be so your- I'm going to be awkward as usual. I'm going to be awkward. I don't like starters because <laughs> I've got a really sweet tooth. So for my three course meal, I'm going to have a main course and two desserts. And, <laughs> and my mum is going to make it all because most people think their mums are the best cooks in the world, but mine really is. <laughs> so my mum is going to make it all. And I'm going to have my last little meal, Yorkshire pudding. I'm from Lancashire, but I love Yorkshire puddings with mm-hmm. roast potatoes. And I just want the small roast potatoes that have all the crispy bits. Yum. And my mum's cauliflower cheese and especially the burnt bits on the top, which are always my favourite. Then for my two desserts, that's not a proper meal, I know. It doesn't have any meat or anything, but that's what I want. And for my two desserts, I'm going to have Biscoff and a white chocolate cheesecake. And then I'm going to have sticky toffee pudding and custard. Oh, lovely. It's not a proper meal, but I don't care. (laughs) Because that's what I want. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, and do you have a favourite quote or mantra? One of my favourite quotes, this was an easy one for me to answer because I have a quote tattooed on my arm, which is from one of my favourite books, which is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And the quotation reads, I am no bird and no net ensnares me, which is particularly significant in terms of my eating disorder because it reminds me that I'm already free. Mm. I can eat. I am free. I have the power to be free. I just need to step out of this net, which is my mind. So I like interpreting it in that way. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that actually. It's very kind of, yeah, powerful about kind of freedom, isn't it? And taking back the control yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us something about you that may surprise us? Okay, it's going to be cat related because I'm a crazy cat lady. (laughs) I have a three-legged kitty um, who is a hero. He had bone cancer. He's a cancer survivor, so he had his right leg and his right shoulder blade amputated. Yeah, he's my little hero. So (laughs) I have a three-legged kitty. (laughs) He's the alpha male as well. I have four cats and he's the alpha male, even though he's only got three legs. So just because... You've got one leg or three legs. Does it mean that you can't be the boss? <laughs> mm, absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for sharing that, Victoria. Well, thank you, Victoria, so much for coming on the podcast. You know, I really appreciate just all your knowledge and wisdom and, you know, for sharing all your kind of insight and research with us because it's really fascinating. And I think you can just sort of tell your real kind of passion for the subject. You know, it's so it's so helpful just to hear all the kind of finer detail, really, and to kind of help us think about the body ideal in this kind of detailed way. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And there's lots more information. This is basically my podcast is about (laughs) bodies and how they've changed over time. And I've got a whole podcast on the Minnesota starvation experiment. So lots more waffle from me on my show. Yeah, no, brilliant. So yeah, so everyone take home message as well. Do go and check out Victoria's podcast, which I will put in the show notes. Is it called Hungry Girl, Victoria? Is that right? Yeah, it's called The Hungry Girl Podcast. Yeah, The Hungry Girl Podcast. So, yeah, so I'll put that in the show notes. And also, Victoria is also on Instagram. So I'll make sure that her handle's on Instagram so you can follow her. Or if you've got any kind of follow-up questions or anything, you if can If you want to see my three-legged cat, they can go on Instagram and have a look at my three-legged cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure you will have lots of people, Victoria, come to see your <laughs> three-legged cat. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for having me. 
So I hope you enjoyed this interview just as much as I did. And do go and check out Victoria's details in the show notes. So if you're not following me already, do check me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And if you'd like to receive weekly tips and information to your inbox, do sign up for my weekly articles at rethinkyourbody.co.uk. Next week, I'm also launching a Steps to Intuitive Eating course. So if you're interested in that, do check on the link in my bio on Instagram or head over to rethinkyourbody.co.uk and you'll find out more information there. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.